Good morning. Well, thank you so much. Uh, truly, like Matt said, it's it's uh, my honor to get up here and to preach to you today. Uh, my wife and I have felt extremely welcomed um, here and, and meeting some of you folk. And um, truly, through the worship and, and just being here a short time, you can tell the Lord is moving in this place. And so it's, it's greatly encouraging. And so with that, I just have a couple introductory notes, and we'll jump right in. Um, the goal for the sermon today is to, I'm going to preach on a text, and the goal is that by the end you want to pray. By the end that you want to pray. So I'm not, I'm not going to preach on, on prayer. In fact, you probably won't even hear me say the word prayer for about 20 to 25 minutes. Uh, and I'm not going to preach on a theology of prayer. These are very important things. So if by the end you're saying, I, now I want to pray, but I have some questions about prayer, I encourage you to go talk to the elders or even myself while I'm still here, um, and they would be more than happy to answer any questions about prayer. If you want to make sure that you're praying theologically correct or just in line with the Word, or you want to pray for the things that the Lord wants you to pray for. Um, but with that, I'm going to preach on a text in hopes that you simply by the end want to pray. I'm going to preach on Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 7 through 9, but we're going to camp out at Ezekiel, chapter 16, for a while before that, for about 20 to 25 minutes, and then we'll wrap up for about 10 minutes in Song of Solomon. I have a disclaimer as far as Ezekiel 16 goes. It has some really intense language, and I want you to know that up front has some graphic language. I'm not going to add to the language at all. It is the word of the Lord. Um, it is not irreverent. It, it is the Lord speaking to his bride, the church. Um, and so with that, I, I, I prayed before coming, and, and I'm, I, I want us to go in with humble hearts, not getting wrapped up. He's, the word of the Lord is going to talk about the realm of prostitution and whoredom. And I don't want us to get wrapped up in the physical realities of those things in the world today. I want the Spirit through the Word of God to allow us to humble our hearts and allow this Word to pierce our hearts so that we can be humble before the Lord and cling to the gospel all the more. Okay? So with that, I'm gonna, we're going to work through pretty much all of Ezekiel 16. I'm going to read the text and preach a little bit, read the text and preach a little bit. So with that, we can go ahead and get started. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 1. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem. And really quick, this text, the whole text, all of Ezekiel, had real application for the historic Jerusalem. Um, but we're in the new covenant, and it has real application to the new Jerusalem. Okay? So I want us to go in knowing that this has real application to us as new covenant Christians. And for even those who, who are here today and not Christian. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations, and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day that you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you. But you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred, hated, is what that word means, on the day that you were born. And so at the end, the last 10 minutes or so, we're going to talk about prayer. But what we need to see is that we shouldn't even have the opportunity to go stand before the Lord in prayer. That's not our rightful due, naturally. What the text is saying here, what the Lord is speaking to his people, he's saying, according to your parents, you have no right to come before me. 
You have no merit in and of your parents. And you have no merit even in and of your birth. You weren't born royal and you weren't born sinless. In fact, the scripture says we were born in iniquity. And so what he's declaring to us here is that this is how he found us. If you have notes, I'm not, I'm not sure if they were in there, but I wrote this for the first section summary. I broke, broke Ezekiel into four sections. It says, you came from parents of no standing. None of the proper procedures were done to you at your birth. You were not cleansed. You were born filthy, left naked, hated even, and left to die in a field all alone. This is how he found us spiritually. This is how he found us spiritually. The text continues in verse 6, And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, that means rolling around. This baby, it's physically alive, but spiritually dead. He says, I saw you wallowing in your blood, and I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. He says it twice. And then he goes on, he says, I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare spiritually, physically alive, spiritually so dead. He's preaching to Jerusalem, a people. And he says, spiritually, you're so dead. He said it twice, live. Just like when he spoke creation into existence. Just like later on in Ezekiel chapter 37, when he's prophesying to the people of Jerusalem, he says that it's a valley of dry bones, a valley of very dry bones. And as the word of the Lord is preaching through Ezekiel, the bones start to rattle and flesh starts to form and he breathes life into these people. Spiritually, they are dead. Spiritually, we are dead before the Lord declares to us and breathes life into us and says, live. And he says, I made you flourish like a plant of the field. Second section summary in your notes, he said, live. He made a covenant with us and we'll go on in the text and we'll see that. He says in verse eight, when I passed by you again and saw you, Behold, you are at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into covenant with you, declares the Lord God. And we need to cling to this verse right now, because what we're going to find out in the text through the Lord is that what he gave us, we ended up sinning with it. And so we need to cling to the fact that he made a vow and a covenant to us. Because a contract, there's a di- difference between a contract and a covenant. We, we're really used to contracts in this culture where you make contracts with our cell phones and our cars and our rental agreements. And a contract says, when you bail on your end of the bargain, if you don't hold up your end of the bargain, I can, it's okay for me to get out of my end of the bargain. But a, a covenant, a vow, says for better or for worse, for sicker or for poorer, even if you don't hold up your end of the bargain, I will hold my covenant. And we need to cling to this verse because what we're going to find out is that we were in covenant with him and we did not hold our end of the bargain. But he is the great covenant keeper. So let's continue on the text. He says, then I bathed you, verse 9, then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And he goes on and on and on saying, I gave you clothing. I washed you and I cleansed you. I gave you silver and gold. I gave you the finest of foods and royalties. I gave you all of these things. So much so that in verse 14, he goes on to say, And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. 
I gave you so much. I, I made you so beautiful that the nations knew about you. And he says, for it was perfect. And how was it perfect? Through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. And so what I want us to see at this point, from our, from our birth to being found in a field and to being adopted as a son and daughter by the king, it has just been grace upon grace upon grace to the life of, of all people, even, even to the non-Christian. It is grace that there is even breath in their lungs. So let's continue. And this is where the language gets a little intense. So again, I, just wanna, I want us to humble our hearts before the Lord and before his word and to let this pierce our hearts for how we use the gifts he gave us, all of that food and that energy and life itself, how we used it because we did not use it for him. We actually used it against him. And so he says in verse 15, but you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore. The like has never been nor ever shall be. He's saying never have I lavished so much on a people and then all you did with it, you actually took off the clothes I gave you and you asked for people to come and be with you instead of going to your husband. The text continues, you also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and my silver, which I had given you and made for yourself images of men and with them played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them and set my oil and my incense before them, also my bread that I gave you. And he goes on and on and he lists every single thing he gave us and he says, this is what we did with it. And is this not true of us? Do we not take the efforts that he's given us, the time and the money and the abilities and instead of using it to glorify the Lord our God, instead of using it to love him and grow in relationship with him, we end up using it against him. And we need to hear this today and allow it to pierce our hearts And because what we need to cling to is not our righteousness, not the righteousness of our parents, but the fact that he is the covenant keeper and he will keep his covenant. Let's go on in verse 20. He says this, And you took your sons and daughters, whom you had borne to me. All children are a blessing from the Lord. He said, And you took your sons and daughters, whom you had borne to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. In this country, we, we literally fulfill this in the realm of abortion. We do. But even, even for those who par- perhaps have not participated in that, Paul, he constantly talks about spiritual children in the faith or simply physical children, giving birth to children and raising them up. We sacrifice them to the man-made concepts out there. Hear this, if, if, if we are raising our children to simply just get a good education and a good job and a good house and a good family and a good retirement and live a happy life, then we are sacrificing them to the man-made idols and man-made concepts out there. This is what the world would tell them to pursue and to just leave it at that. But the word of the Lord says, no, you're not going to find satisfaction in those things. In fact, you'll find satisfaction in me and me alone. It is at the right hand of God that there are pleasures forevermore. And we know at the right hand of God is not material things. It is Jesus himself. And this is what we need to cling to. So may we not sacrifice our children to the idols out there. 
And I'm not saying getting a house or a car or a job, those are good things, but those are not ends in of themselves. We use those things to the glory of God. We use those things to uh, lay down before our local church and say, what can I do? How can I serve? I want to make disciples. I want to take on the Great Commission. There are millions who have not heard the gospel. What can I do to change that? Verse 23, actually really quick. In verse 22, he says, In all of your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth. And he's going to say this almost at the end of every paragraph. He's going to say, Why are you going about sinning like this? Because you did not remember the days of your youth. You did not remember where you came from. You actually allowed entitlement and pride to build up in you to think that you deserved to get to spend your money however you want. You get to live however you want. And he's saying, no, remember where I found you. He's saying, you were literally cast out in a field. This is what the Lord of the Lord said to us. Cast out in a field, abhorred, left to die. And I said to you, live. And I took you in. And I clothed you. And I fed you. He's saying, don't forget the days of your youth. He goes on, verse 23, and after all of your wickedness, woe, woe to you, declares the Lord God. And you built yourself a vaulted chamber and made yourself a lofty place in every square and at the head of every street you built your lofty place and made your beauty an abomination, offering yourself to any passerby and multiplying your whoring. You also played the whore with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors. And then he goes on to say in verse 28, you played the whore also with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. Yes, you played the whore with them and still you were not satisfied. In verse 29, he says, you multiplied your whoring with the trading land of Chaldea and even with this, you were not satisfied. How often do we go seek for satisfaction in the things of the world? How often do we uh, go to our lustful neighbors thinking that it will satisfy? Or that lustful website, or even walking down the road, we allow lust to build up in our hearts. And it doesn't even always have to be after a person. It can be manifest itself in greed. I just want that new thing. He, he talks about the trading land of Chaldea, and he's been so detailed here, I can't help but think he's talking about a, a, a busy place of trading. And he's saying you kept going there thinking if you just accumulate more things, you'll be satisfied. He's saying it's not going to work. You're going to want more and more and more. May we use the money and the time and the efforts that he gives us to his glory because he will satisfy he will satisfy. These things will not satisfy. Brothers and sisters, even the unchristian and the non-Christian in the room, we know these things don't satisfy. How many new cell phones do you have to buy to realize that a few months down the road it's just going to be the same old thing? And we can apply that to every category of our life. Let's continue. Verse 30, how sick is your heart? How sick is your heart? And, and I know, even in my own heart, that I hear this text and I think my heart's not that sick. But my prayer before coming here, my prayer when I preached this at our church, at the response church, for hours was that there would not be an ounce of self-righteousness in the room when the word of the Lord is saying your heart is sick and you need a savior. So may you not be thinking at this point that my heart's not that bad. That based on my parents and based on my works and based on the gifts you've given me, I have used them to glorify you enough because we haven't. 
He goes, you did all of these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute, building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street and making your lofty place in every square. He says, yet you were not like a prostitute because you scorned payment. Verse 32, adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side. What he's saying here is the prostitute gets paid for her work, but you actually took, we actually took all the things the Lord gave us and we pay out so that we can participate in the world's things, so that we can make sacrifices to the world's idols and, and concepts. He's saying, so we are actually different. And then, and then remember, I said we need to cling to the fact that he will keep his covenant. So in verse 35, in this next paragraph, okay, because with a holy God and a just God, we, we all know if there was a judge in the town and someone had committed a crime and there was even evidence for it, much evidence, it was on video, the person even was willing to say that they did commit the crime, but they let them off, would we not say that that person is unjust? So when we sin over and over and over against the king who gave us everything, when we rebel against him, he is in his great love and his mercy, he sent his son to pay for us, but a payment must be paid. So for those not in Christ Jesus, they will pay for their own sin. And it will be eternal because we have sinned against an eternal king. But we will see here in this paragraph how Christ fulfills our payment for those who are in Christ. You know, if you don't know him today, you can cast yourself upon him. In the next paragraph, we're going to see he is speaking to his bride and he's saying, I'm going to make you pay this way and I'm going to make you pay this way and I'm going to make you pay this way. But we will see as new covenant Christians that Christ paid for it in every way. So let's look at that. He says, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those you loved and all those you hated, and I will gather them against you from every side and will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. And Christ was crucified naked. He goes on, I will, and I will judge you as women who commit adultery and shed blood are judged. He's saying, I will judge you as someone who committed adultery, rightfully so, and I will judge you as a murderer. In Christ, he was pierced for our iniquities. He paid for our transgressions. And I will give you into their hands, and they shall throw down your vaulted chamber and break down your lofty places. Verse 39. Christ came from the loftiest of chambers, the loftiest of thrones, and he went all the way down to the cross. They replaced his rightful crown with a crown of thorns. And he goes on, they shall strip you of your clothes and take your beautiful jewels and leave you naked and bare. They stripped him naked. And in Roman crucifixion, they take a scourge, it's a whip with this big spike ball at the end and they rip your skin apart. And then they put a robe around him as he's all bloodied and they let it dry and then they tore it off before they crucified him text continues they shall bring up a crowd against you crucify him crucify him 
and they shall stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords, and they shall burn your houses and execute judgments upon you in the sight of many women. He says, I will make you stop playing the whore, and you shall also give payment no more. He's saying, I will get to this point where you won't have to pay anymore. In Christ, he paid it all. In verse 42, he says, so will I satisfy my wrath on you. We all know, if you're not familiar, in Isaiah 53, it says it satisfied the Lord to crush him. See, we, we can't just think that it was simply the physical death of Jesus that atoned for our sin. We had martyrs for generations and generations who willingly went to the cross singing hymns as they were crucified. And yet we wonder why Jesus, um, in the garden, he says, Lord, pass this cup from me. What is that cup? It is the crucifixion. I don't want to diminish that for a second. But it is also the cup referred to in multiple places in the Old Testament of the white hot wrath that God has against sin. And Jesus, he drank the cup dry. That's why he declared, it is finished. And don't let anyone ever come to you preaching a gospel contrary to the one that Paul preached to us or that your, abor- your elders labor week after week to preach to you. If anyone ever tells you there's any works you need to do, even 1%, there's nothing you need to do. You can just trust in the gospel and receive full righteousness, even here and now. And he goes on in verse 43, because you have not remembered the days of your youth, but have enraged me with all these things. Also, don't, don't believe the, the new age American Christian lie that the Lord doesn't get angry. He is a holy God. If we love children, then we would naturally hate things that abuse children, right? If we, if we love people, then we hate when people are just downtrodden, downtrodden by the systems. Therefore, the Lord, he loves his people and he hates sin. He has a white-hot wrath against it, and it is fully just. And we cannot atone for ourselves. He goes on in the next paragraph, I'm not going to go through it, to simply remind us of the days of our youth as if he has not made it abundantly clear. And I encourage you this week to, to read the whole chapter. But we're going to go ahead to verse 59, where he says, For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done. You who have despised the oath in breaking the covenant, we have broke the covenant. Yet I will remember my covenant with you. Remember I said we need to cling to that truth, that verse, in the days of your youth. So we forgot the days of our youth and that led us to sin. He remembers the days of our youth, remembers the covenant he made, and that leads him to pay for our sin. How great a savior. Let's go on. It says in verse 62, I will establish my covenant with you and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded. And then he ends with this last sentence, when I atone for you for all that you have done, declares the Lord God. When I atone for you for all that you have done. Atone means to pay for. He truly, the Lord himself is right here prophesying, saying I will pay for every damnable deed I just listed here. I myself, the king of glory, will send my only begotten son to pay for all of it. And he did. So with that, let's jump into 2 Corinthians. It's in your notes, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, 
If Ezekiel wasn't clear, we're going we're to sum up the gospel here. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, the sinners, God the Father made Jesus to be sin, even though he knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Even when Jesus is before Pontius Pilate, but before they're about to send him to the cross, Pontius Pilate says, he says, I see no fault in this man. And then when he's on the cross, Jesus has a criminal to his right and to his left. And one criminal says, you're, if you're the son of God, why don't you get us all down from here? And the other criminal says, you have it all wrong. This man has done nothing wrong. We are criminals, but he is innocent. And yet he is being condemned. But, but, soon after, hours later, the Lord himself will yell, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did he yell that? It's because he truly was forsaken by the Father so that we wouldn't have to be forsaken by the Father. So that he can keep his covenant because a payment had to be made. And we must cling to that. How beautiful a savior that he would go to that extent to redeem a sinful people. But he loves us. In his great mercy, he sent his son. Song of Psalm in chapter 4, verse 7 says, You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Song of Solomon has real application between two humans. But just like everything in Scripture, it points ultimately to Christ and his people. And so Christ here is declaring to his bride, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. And even if now, if you're thinking uh, at some, you're thinking right now, I don't even want to be called beautiful. According to this text, I I am not beautiful at all. There's, there's good truth in that. But you also need to cling to the fact that he is not exaggerating in the slightest when he says there is no flaw in you because the Lamb of God truly atoned for every drop of every crimson stain that sin has left upon you. You are washed completely white as snow. And so I hope I hope at this point that even the gospel itself could get us to woo us and convict us to want to go be with this king, with this father, who we now have full access to because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And if you are not clothed in the righteousness of Christ, if you're not a Christian, if you're brand new here today, talk to the elders after. Say, what must I do to be saved? And they will say, trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Trust in his righteousness, in his work, not your parents, not your birth, and not your works after you grew up, but in Christ. And so hopefully at that point, we'd want to go pray. But if not, he lovingly woos us all the more. Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 8, he says, Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, and from the mountains of leopards. These are real mountain peaks in northern Palestine that he's talking about. And he's saying they're dangerous. Dangerous places. There's dens of lions and leopards up there. And he's saying, come down from those places and be with me. Commune with him. And so I want to simply break this scripture down with one simple question. 
One simple question. In the last 24 to 48 or 72 hours, what were you so wrapped up in? What were you so busy with? What is your mountain peak that you simply need to come down from and spend time with the Lord in prayer? What was keeping you so occupied? It could even be good things. I was really busy with my kids or my family or at work. Those are good things. But hear me, you can bring your kids and you can bring your family and go before the Lord in prayer. And you can sing worship to him even in the comfort of your own home. I encourage you, go spend time with him, daily time with him. Let's continue. Song of Solomon, really quick, I have a note on that. So at this point, it can get a little confusing because you can hear, wow, I'm, I'm really sinful according to Ezekiel 16. And I hope, I hope we realize that this really does apply to us. Um, but we can also think, but then he's declaring to me there is no flaw in you. And he's speaking to his bride. And so I, I want to draw a distinction theologically. There's something called justification and there's something called sanctification. They both happen at the moment of conversion. They both start at the moment of conversion. But justification says you're either wholly justified or wholly unjustified. So when, when Jesus stamps that you are justified, that I have paid for you, nothing can take that away. Paul goes on to say, not, not an angel, nor hell, no nothing can strip that away from you. Nothing can keep you from the love of God once you are in Christ. You're trusting in him. Not even yourself. Are you someone? Because he says no one can pluck you from his hand. He says his sheep hear his voice. Okay, He will keep you. The one who starts a good work will bring it to completion. So as far as justification goes, he declares there is no flaw in you. But as far as sanctification goes, that starts at the same time, but it's a process, a lifelong process. And as far as sanctification goes, he says come down from those mountain peaks. Even at times repent. And even at other times, he might not even be saying repent, but he's saying just take 10 minutes away, get up 10 minutes earlier and spend some time with me. And then, lastly, we're wrapping up here. Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 9. So if the gospel, if, if remembering the days of our youth and then remembering the gospel that he kept his covenant and he paid for us is not enough to get us to want to pray. He has one last wooing here. He says, you have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. We are a sister of Christ and his bride. He says, you have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. Brothers and sisters, what he is saying here is that for those in Christ, when you go before him in prayer and you glance heavenward, you captivate his heart. This is the omnipotent, omniscient creator and sustainer of all life. He's saying when you go before me in prayer, even as a congregation at prayer night or in the comfort of your own home on your knees, completely alone, when you glance heavenward, you have my full heart's attention. What a scandal that such sinners would, would have access to this and we can call him Abba Father. We can call him Savior and we can dwell with him for an eternity in communion with him. So I want us to remember the days of our youth. May we not trust in our righteousness. May we not trust in the righteousness of our parents. May we realize that God is holy and loving and therefore a price had to be paid, but we can rejoice that Christ, he paid it all. 
And then let's be wooed into prayer. Go and commune with him. And hold one another accountable to it. Because at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. That is the only place that will satisfy. So with that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an honor, humbling, humbling, humbling honor to come before you even now, remembering the days of our youth while it is fresh in our hearts. Father, may you remind us of the days of our youth when we forget. But may you also through the elders and through brothers and sisters and through your word itself and through your soft touch by the power of your spirit, remind us the gospel that we can cling to, Lord. We need to remember your gospel every single day and may you continue to woo us even in our still rebellion, even in our sanctification. We thank you for your patience with us. May you continue to woo us to come and simply commune with you. May we long for the pleasures forevermore. Who is Jesus who sits at your right hand? We love you, Lord. I thank you so much for this opportunity to bring your word to this congregation. I thank you for this congregation. Keep them unified in the knowledge of the Son of God. Continue to bless them because he bore our curse. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.